Kath, hi, how are you doing? I'm really good, thanks, Richmond. How's your week started? Well, um, it's funny because um, every time I go into my local coffee shop in Chelsea, we, we talk, or well, they're talking about the weekend and the week, and I always say to them, just, just don't differentiate between the two. It's one big blur, isn't it? Let's face it. I've I've given up um, thinking about a Sunday as a Sunday now. A Sunday is like just another day of the week, which is nice. But I am looking forward to a bit of punctuation in the week, I have to say, like going to the pub. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so you mean sort of punctuate your week with social activities? Yes, yeah. Because as much as I love my husband and I love walking my dogs and Greenwich Park, it it's it's getting a bit samey. <laughs> Yeah, does it does it feel like Groundhog Day? Yeah, it does. It does, and I'm desperate to see family because um, my dad my dad's terminally ill at the moment. I can't be with mm. him, so it's really hard to not be able to go see him. So it, I do lots of lots of great things and creative stuff, um, but I'm just I'm itching to go and actually bump shoulders with somebody um, yeah. and not have to uh, worry about putting a mask on or all the, all the stuff. I'm sure we're missing, you know, just a hug with a stranger. <laughs> yeah. People sort of been talking about, you know, those, those, those kind of accidental bumping it into people or the, the incidental uh, where you go for coffee or, or whatever, yeah. missing out on those interactions. Have you, you found that? Yeah, totally. And um, so when I'm, when I'm in clinic, I mean, I'm lucky I get to see human beings in the flesh and, and some of the patients who come to my clinic, they're like, it's the first time they've literally been up to London for a whole year. And for them, it's alien and, also exciting they've been desperate to come out on the train and and you know I've been sort of working throughout lockdown um with with the exception of a couple of months when I didn't travel in and um I think for some people um, and I'm very lucky I, you know I get variants but I think for some people they must be climbing the walls <laughs> yeah yeah I, I guess this has affected everyone in in a different way yeah um but you so you've worked right the way through yes yes so for a couple of months, we, we, were, we were kicked out of the hospital environment, but we kept everything going virtually. And then now I spend, um, I, I go into clinic and I see half people on the screen on Zoom and half people in the flesh rattling behind PPE. <laughs> yeah. what, what, do you, what do you have to wear? I wear scrubs and uh, uh, something that looks like half between an apron and an operating theatre gown and a mask and gloves um yeah so it's all very impersonal and uh, i make a point of standing at the end of the corridor and pulling my mask down to show the person what i look like because otherwise they'd never know yeah yeah that's nice isn't it because i suppose you have you have you got to the point now where you sort of forget that you've got a mask on when you're talking yes. to someone yeah and to the point where I literally, well, we'll travel home and I might be in my home 10 minutes after I think, oh, I can take my mask off now. <laughs> oh, see, <laughs> it's become part of your, your persona. It's bad. <laughs> yeah. do, you, do you think it's, it, it, it's affected the way that you approach things? Yeah, absolutely, because I normally I'm a human octopus, so especially with my patients, rightly or wrongly, they get a whole bunch of love when, when they come in the room. And uh, most of the time I'm, I have to dial it, dial it down, but I would love to give mankind a gigantic hug as soon as it walks into the room. So that's been very hard. I have to sort of almost do some physical things myself, like I'm putting my hands together, like I'm praying, or sometimes I have to hug my upper arm so that I don't 
<laughs> don't go and ask the yeah. patient all these weird, weird, weird things. And I'm also a bit worried about how it's going to go in the future. Are we actually going to go back to shaking hands and greeting people? Or is it always going to be a bit standoffish? I hope not. But people might not find their way back if they weren't a huggy type before, maybe. Yeah, I mean, that's a really good point, isn't it? Because... I mean, touch is so fundamental and um, and there were issues before. There were issues before lockdown, weren't there? Being identified, we've become touch averse and there's literature yeah. around that. And, um, and and now this has happened. So, you know, those people who were uncomfortable with it, and obviously there are reasons why that, that is, could become even more uncomfortable because they just haven't had the exposure, you think? Yes. Imagine if you've lived on your own for a year. And uh, and you you know you, you might have someone in your bubble, but but they don't really hug you. That would just gosh, very alien. I think th I'm wondering whether there's this is the reason why we see so many pets now. I think I don't think it's just getting out. I don't think it's just entertainment. I think we actually need something physical and warm and furry <laughs> yeah. to cuddle up with. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely, and not and not just a hairy person. Um, <laughs> so Indeed. so you I mean on that front you've acquired. Two, I believe. Two, I know, but a third is on its way. A third was born born recently, and the the Italian greyhound stork will be bringing us a third one in about ten weeks. Wow! Are they are they all from the same family then? Uh, two will be from the same 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 sort of home. Another one came. They, they all seem to come from South Wales, Iggy's, um, but they're great. They um, and I mean it's crazy. We're going to have three. That's just madness. But what can I say? Uh, they're irresistible and they, they bring so much joy. They're kind of, as soon as you come in the front door, even if you've only been away for five minutes, they sort of greet you like you're the, you know, long lost child of the house and they spin around and jump up and down. They're so jubilant to see you every time. It's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, that must give you a really good feeling. It does, it does. And unlike any other dogs, I've had dogs all my life and uh, most dogs will come and wag their tail and sniff at you, but these are, it's just party party every time they see you, it's great. Yeah. Yeah, so I've I've seen the pictures and they're they're extremely cute. To to me, they look like like don't be offended, mini greyhounds. They do, yeah. But so what what is the breed? Yeah, Italian greyhounds. So they're they're a very ancient breeds. So if you see all those Roman tapestries, you might see you know um, sort of um, yeah, kind of well, Romans and queens and kings, and they would have a small, elegant-looking greyhound, and that's an Italian greyhound. They're only about a foot off the ground. And they were designed originally to keep people warm. So because they like being on your lap, <laughs> that's why they were bred. So they're a 3000 year old breed, you know? Wow. So, yeah. So yeah. I guess the full size version kind of grew out of them. Maybe it's a. Yeah. Well, I suppose <laughs> a full size version sitting on your lap could be tricky. Um, yeah. But uh, so, so what made you choose an Italian greyhound? Well, I've always had rescue full-size greyhounds and, and I live in, a, in a, a small bijou flat in Greenwich and um, I thought, well, we could have a rescue greyhound here, but, you know, we might fall over it a lot in the flat. They're very lazy. They make ideal pets. If you ever want a pet, get yourself a rescue greyhound. Um, but um, but uh, we decided, we, we met one of these Iggy's and we thought they were great and it just, it niggled at us for ages and we tried not to get one and then it just happened. <laughs> And, and do you think you'll stop at three? I think so. I think so. I think four would be just a bit too much. So three, you can pick up all at once, but four would be testing my ability to lift that much, I think. So you, yeah. can, you can hold three at once? Yeah, you can. You can. 
Wow. And at the moment, that two sit on my lap. I, I do this thing where I wrap it in a, a kind of small dog blanket and then I wrap another one on top and stack it. We call it a pagoda. Mm. So when we have the third, they'll all be balancing. So when I'm working at my desk, they, they, they sleep I like a stack. It's great. And, and when they're running, I mean, do they, are they fast? They're as fast as the full size. They will outrun any dog in the park. Yeah. Wow. Amazing. That must be something to see them like bombing around. Yeah, and they can turn on a sixpence as well. So they're kind of, uh, they, they're really quick and agile. So they're like kind of, you know how a squirrel darts about manically? Yeah. You think, is it going to make it across the road? They're just like that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> so we we acquired um, a, well, I, we keep saying a pom, but I think it's something else. I think it's more of a schnitzel or something like that. I th there's definitely pom in, in your dog, isn't there? Yeah. 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 yeah um but it's not we we used to look after these these little ones teacup ones for for some people that we knew and they they sort of did nothing they're just like ball of fluff with a little snout and and they didn't really do much whereas this one chico he's he's quite a character and he he bombs around as well and um and and he, he's really quite agile for, for, again, for just a slightly bigger ball of fluff. But I don't think he would, he would definitely be outrun by yours, you know. You think so? Yes, <laughs> easily, easily. Okay. Um, but he must bring joy to you. And what made you get him? Was it the kids or was it or? Yeah, no, nothing, nothing yeah. to do with me particularly. Um, so Joe looked and, and Lucy very much sort of, looked into things and i'm not sure what the final decision what you know what what pulled it that way you know size wise and and things like that but um but yeah no he, he definitely has that he's very barky they're he's, they're quite demanding um okay. he wants to think he's in charge oh are you top dog though well, it's it's interesting, isn't it? Because I, I I sort of say, oh no, I, it's your dog. I'm, but I, you know, obviously, secretly, you kind of like it. Um, <laughs> and and I I haven't really been involved in the training side of things much. Um, but I but I'm interested in um, how he responds to my voice versus the girls' voices. Mm. I think there's a difference there. I think that's quite well known, isn't it? Oh yes, unfortunately, the 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 generally speaking even if you're not around as much if you've got the deeper boomier voice the dogs tend to respect that a bit more so wow. whereas interestingly the more shrill we get with them like don't lie down lie down um the dog just kind of like what's she saying yeah you know? it's just noise yeah. it's just noise. so it's, um, no. yeah my husband's top dog in in this house whereas normally i've always been the top dog <laughs> uh -huh. okay so yeah so it, i suppose it's contextual isn't it so when it comes to the dogs maybe they see but then all other matters <laughs> so that's really sort of got you through covid then has it or so yes. far. we're not out of it yet but um indeed literally if i hadn't have had the pooches um then it would have been very different i'm not sure i would have succumbed to cheese lots of wine i don't know i don't know what it was really um i know you know i still i still managed to run a bit i don't i can't run anything like you can now um but I, I go for a lurch around because I'm a little bit dick. I'm very dicky my joints these days. But um, so that's that's been great. And doing creative things and starting new projects has been good. But yeah, you've got to have a pet at the end of the day, haven't you? Yeah, it, it definitely it definitely adds something. 
um for sure you know you come in and you've got that little unconditional welcome yes everyone else can be sort of grumpy and but but you'll always get um you know a jumpy barky sort of welcome which is nice <laughs> it's lovely <laughs> so um okay now I'm, I'm interested um in the fact that you you've taken you know your the, the many things you've learned you and you're very learned in in many ways and i know that because i know you um and um you, you've taken some of your skills and knowledge um to not only help people deal with their sports and exercise and active type injuries and pain but um but people who have practices and um i, I won't be, i haven't been putting the videos up so people can't see what's behind you but um the ninja academy <laughs> so during lockdown um when lockdown started obviously a lot of people found who who are in private practice so physios and doctors and osteopaths and stuff suddenly found themselves you know locked out of a home locked out of income and um and it was a disaster for them and uh, most of us have been financially hit if, if we're you know you, if you haven't been you've been you've done very well and so when lockdown started I started doing um kind of meet up on zooms with my one of my colleagues um Cheryl Laidlaw who's a web designer I work closely with and part of when I'm not doctoring I, I help clinicians to grow their private practices which is all the sort of stuff like how you stuff you write on your website and making vlogs and blogs and all that all that fun stuff as I call it and so we started to do a weekly Wednesday zoom call and people liked it so much that they they asked, "Oh, can we just do this a bit more permanently?" So now, um, one one day a week, uh, we sort of run this academy, and that means that, you know doctors and physios and osteos sort of are part of a membership program, and they we all jump in and we sort of learn new skills. And there's lots of accountability and lots of encouragement. So, for example, uh, in the last month, we've been getting people to do lots of vlogging, and uh, and this month it's going to be about learning a bit of techie stuff. You know, like what's should you be doing for SEO for your website and uh, and all that good stuff so that people have really good some good marketing and business skills for their practices um, and actually enjoy most I think most clinicians tend to shy away from tech but it's been really nice to help people embrace the tech and I love I love all things tech so mm. it's been great fun and uh, it's, it's so nice to see people who've not done something before we gently drag them out of their comfort zone and now, now they're doing some great stuff, which is helping helping them to attract more patients, and very importantly, helping them to help patients because patients can say, "Oh gosh, I didn't know you could help me with that," and uh, and that's all happened as a direct result of them making a vlog about it or, or writing about it. Yeah, so it's there great seems fun. I love to be, it. Um, I mean, I I came on one of I think was it one of your earlier courses in in London where we sat around a table and we, we yes yes yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, things have come on for you a lot since then. I can't know how long ago that was now. I mean, you're talking years, not not yeah. many years, yeah. but some some years. Maybe maybe four or five years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and <laughs> and now you know there's there's the channel and there's the online stuff, and you've really you've really grown it. So what what's different now to to what you were doing then? So half so there's a sort of membership program which is the academy, and then the other sort of so half the week I'm a doctor. And the other half of the week, I will I work with my husband, and we do we do for example like we might go and do some filming with a clinician, and so we'll follow a surgeon around, and we'll yeah, we'll bully them into saying some stuff that's not um, 
not nonsense as I call it so for example they'll they'll we'll film some content and I kind of coach them through that on screen and so and then we'll sort of edit the video make it all nice and shiny and then that goes in their websites and we, we teach them how to do that and then I'll, I'll often copyright for people's websites and also all the all the kind of technical bits and bobs like the GDPR and stuff we help people with the documentation for that so so it's like all the stuff you don't want to do that that you need to get sorted legally for your practice and then all the fun stuff that helps you to promote your practice and so I'll have some people that I'll see once a week and we'll do a coaching call about you know what they're doing and who they're reaching out to and uh, and so yeah so half the week it's half and half now which is great yeah I mean that that sounds fantastic and and interesting that I mean I because obviously you guys did my GDPR and um and removed an enormous hassle and stress um and and you know to be honest between you and me and anyone else listening i've still got not really much idea about what it's about but that that all that was removed i mean obviously i know the basics of what we should and shouldn't be doing but but all the wording and how it should be done you know you guys did did all of that and removed that which was which was brilliant And that was born out of scratching an itch in the sense that obviously we knew that we had to do this. And so we thought we need to really understand this and being the kind of people. And also because it is intimately involved in tech, you know, like where is your, where did your email go and where is it, you know, saved and how are you saving data? And because my husband's a a, a geek um, and a tech freak like I am, he, um, he can help people sort of overcome. So a lot of us have tatty habits with tech. And so we really enjoy helping people to sort of streamline that and, uh, so that when we'd when we'd learned all how to do this and then all the legalese around it and all that stuff, we thought, well, we can help other people now because we've learned how to do this. So, um, yeah, because imagine having to do it your own. It's like oh. it's like it's like having to do your own appendicectomy. You you could do it, you could. <laughs> but you wouldn't want to. <laughs> yeah. 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 So that's that's brilliant. So that's that's fantastic. There's, there seems to be and I'm, I'm really simplifying this maybe for my own thinking, but, but sort of in, in private practice, sort of two, two types in a way, there's those that seem really confident in what they're doing kind of out there and putting, you know, blogs or videos, tweets, da, 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 all that out there. And, and, um, and then others who, who, who are very modest and humble about what they're doing. I don't mean the others are not humble and modest, by the way, um, more, perhaps more in terms of the comfort of charging someone for your services. This seems to be a classic thing that a lot of oh people worry about. It's huge, isn't it? And and I and, and every single day I have a conversation. And actually, actually, I think doctors are even worse than than physios and osteos in this. Um, but we just hide behind it in a different way. So there's and it's really interesting. So if we're using the example now of who we are in lockdown, and there's a huge pressure of patients who are, are desperate to get help would, would normally be seeking their help in the NHS and now are making decisions about do I actually invest in my healthcare? And then as soon as you even sort of bring that to the table, there's this big rush of emotions on all sides. So for example, sometimes um, doctors feel a bit guilty bizarrely about helping somebody who's self-funding they feel that there's there's somehow almost greater responsibility than say looking after a patient who's got insurance and the insurance probably came from their company so somehow there's this idea that oh gosh I don't want to spend the patient's money and and that stems from this sort of deep-rooted sense of you know we need to help mankind and that's great but it's often displaced because a lot of the time you know it's like 
I would be very happy for somebody to like, I can't wait to get my hip replaced, for example. <laughs> We're done now, you know. Um, and I would happily pay, and for various reasons, I've not been able to do that, and obviously we've had COVID, but I would, you know, I would happily pay, say somebody, I've, look, I'm happy to invest my hard-earned cash in this because it will solve a problem. And also it takes pressure off the NHS. But what's very interesting is that there is still this kind of um it's not so much necessarily how you feel about it it's more about how sometimes you feel your peers are going to think about you working in private practice so some of the doctors i work with really want to try and keep things on the down and low they don't want to cause any any notice being brought to them because they're worried about what their peers might think who are solely working in the nhs and i and i understand how that fits and i've not worked in the nhs now since what 2003 do i have a problem with it no can I do a much better job of where I am now? Absolutely. Um, and, and it enables me to do stuff as well that I wouldn't do if I was, you know, burnt out and fried in the Nash, let's face it. Mm -hmm. So, um, but lots of physios and osteos are, are still starving to death, as I call it, because they're just not um, thinking. Um, it, it's almost like I will just, I don't want to put people off. I want to be able to help everybody. So I'll, you know, charge a small amount. And, and I, I, I have this idea also that, um when we think about other things we pay for so i like getting my nails done okay because i'm i'm old i'm looking wrinkly it's the one thing i can do <laughs> now in now in lockdown i can't go and see my lovely little vietnamese ladies who make make my hands look magical and so i have to do a bad job of it myself <laughs> i'm very happy to spend money on that and patients are very happy so if you go to a nail salon in london okay and you have what's called a full set of, and they might sort of paint this gel powder on to make your nails strong and then they make it all sparkly. That might cost you 80 quid, okay? And you wow. sit there for an hour and I know, yeah? And if, it, if it lasts well, it'll last you about a month. So, and you might think, gosh, that's a lot of money to spend on nails, but hmm. a lot of us girls do that. A lot of us girls will go and get a cutting color um, if that's hairs your thing, yeah? But, um but when you compare that skill set which is still fantastic don't get me wrong they've trained for years these ladies and they do an amazing job but when you compare that with the knowledge of a physio osteo who might charge 50 pounds mm. for the equivalent amount mm -hmm. of time it's like okay guys some people are prepared to pay for their nails they are absolutely prepared to invest in their healthcare. you have to let them yeah. <laughs> invest in their healthcare and stop hiding your amazing skills because you know, it's often the best clinicians are the people who speak about it less. And I, I do, I do sometimes think also that out there in the social media, there can be people who are quite noisy vessels and, and they're uh, the, the people who are a little bit more shy about promoting themselves are worried about being shot down by some of these big noises. Mm. Um, I don't know. Do you feel about, do you ever feel that? Yeah. So, um, it, it took me a long time to to position myself and, and I'm, I'm often thinking about it and I last year was doing some work on on my positioning again because um, I think it's something that we have to keep rethinking and, and you know with and I've very much focused as you know on, on particular you know groups of people so um, and but it, yeah so it took me a long time and funny enough I was I, there's a particular person I've worked with who a patient um, I tend to call them people now, um, yeah. who, who, who was probably the, the, the person who, who encouraged me, he kept saying, you, this is a long time ago now, you've you got to put your prices up, this is ridiculous, almost <laughs> saying, I won't come to you unless you put your prices up. 
Um, and, and other consultants, and I think we've had this chat as well, uh, saying similar things um, and said, well, you know, it's, it's just not reflective of what we're doing here. So you need to put your prices up because if I'm going to refer to you, then then actually, you know, we're offering a you know, very good quality service. It's very specialist. It's got to be reflective. So so I took that on board. But I remember, you know, some years ago when there were discussions with um, certain healthcare providers, um, insurers around around the costings and and undoubtedly, you know, the physio world and probably the osteo world as well, which I don't know as well. You know, the prices went down and down and down. I think yeah. that people were worried that they wouldn't get, you know, the association and therefore so that that's been a that, there's a sort of a residue problem from that and as you say i think it's all fear led um yes. you know, if i put my prices up then people won't come and won't come and see me and i'm well, not sure that's grounded in anything i don't think that's true you're absolutely right and all the all the evidence points to the contrary isn't it you know the, the higher your prices the more people think you are valuable and therefore the more likely they are to book in to see you and it's it's not us about being mercenary at all it's about us sharing our skills and also you can't what you can't do is you can't battle through 18 patients a day and give a good service because you're charging 30 pounds a day because that's all the access ppp will give you yeah. um and so a, a lot of what i help people with is to try and l sometimes even let go of the insurers um it's a bit different perhaps for doctors but um even then i'm still encouraging people to you know look at your self-funding patient because uh those people are invested. They really want to engage in the process. Um, they make the best patients in some respects, if you can use that sense in that they, they're here for a reason and, you know, they want to get better. And, and I think what you can't do is you can't, um, you know, just a battle through the day, seeing mass numbers, feeling drained, trying to keep up with the admin. It's just an awful life. So mm. it's my mission really to help people to sort of step into charging what they, what they're worth. And then they can do a better job of serving everybody, frankly. Yeah, and that's it. So, so in essence, then you're what you're doing is is helping the helpers help people help themselves. Yes. Thereby, everybody is everyone's benefiting here. So that's exactly. the model. Every everyone wins from everyone from wins. Yeah. And that's a really powerful message, isn't it? That your pricing. Will have an impact on either everybody winning or or not yes exactly and you know and we're led by these false ceilings so i'm some of the physios i work with will charge 300 pounds an hour which is kind of what doctors would charge a lot of the time and and it's arbitrary that you know i i know lots of people who would who would think actually the service they get from the doctors really isn't worth that and and sometimes you know surgeons will charge people 250 pounds for 10 minutes of a flash of an x-ray and that's it so I think it's important to think about, as you say, you talk about your, your sort of niche area and I'd rather people, rather than try to just attract the masses, really honed in on what their skill set is and who they can help the most. Like I love patients who've got sort of hippie-goiny, backy combinations and people who are running obsessed and obsessed with keeping going despite things falling off and, and they're my niche. I'd much rather see them. Whereas if you send me somebody who's got Achilles tendon problem, I'll just yawn and fall asleep. It's like, oh, come on, you know, something more interesting, please. So, um, so people need to work on the niches. That's the other thing. They're, they're, they're worried that if you if you if you hone in on the thing you're really good at, then you're suddenly not going to be able to see any patients. You won't make a living. And again, the contrary is true. So, um, you know, 
people uh, since lockdown started I've had patients from all over the UK who come and see me virtually now you know Edinburgh and down in Plymouth whatever because they they suddenly realize oh actually I, I can go and see somebody who understands me and they're not instantly going to tell me to stop running you know yeah so yeah and I think the virtual world will definitely continue as it should do yeah it's it's opened that up hasn't it and um I don't think, and, and sounds like you think the same, that this is this isn't a temporary thing now. This is this is it, which which opens all sorts of opportunities. Exactly. And ways that you can help people. So if, if there's a part of you that, that feels so in my here's me. Okay, I would love to see everybody for free give everything away, but sadly I have a roof over my head and three dogs. Yes, yeah, <laughs> how to, to service, yeah. Maybe so. more, maybe more in the future. We'll we'll keep an yeah, eye yeah. on that. <laughs> But there are ways and you can now sort of free yourself up to be able to do stuff that is feels a little bit more, um, I don't know, that you're kind of giving back in your own way. So it might be that you choose to work in a sort of program, uh, like, for example, there's a program locally called Believe, uh, which I'll, I'll go into do some mentoring session with young, young, young girls here in Lewisham, you know, who need some somebody to sort of guide them through and, and encourage them. So you, you can do that when you've got a bit more time and you're not fried. Um, and also you can do you can sort of spread your skill set a bit further so obviously you have a wealth of knowledge I can't imagine anyone who knows more about pain and guiding people through pain than you and imagine then if you're a sort of physio or an osteo or a doctor and then you can then take on other people underneath you a little bit I don't mean necessarily in the business model sense I mean more like a kind of mentoring sense really and because you've got the bandwidth emotionally mentally because because you love what you do and you're not bombed out by the fodder of it all day long you can help then tutor the next generation and yes it's nice and you can do that for free but actually probably that does deserve to be paid for a little bit as well and I think the models in in healthcare in the states are and when I've worked in the states before it's you know you sort of pay to be part of a fellowship program or, or you get paid a small amount because you're working for them but you know they, they keep back a bit in the sort of payment so I think paid mentorship sometimes works really well it's nice when you have a, a traditional mentoring sense but sometimes Sometimes you do need to invest a bit. And uh, the sitting down in front of some dreary kind of PowerPoint presentation, learning that kind of spoon-fed way is, is kind of, well, doesn't work, does it? <laughs> no, <laughs> Not very effectively. No. So no. I love the idea of people spending time sort of in clinic, you know, one-to-one, just kind of seeing how other people do things differently. And because um, we're all a mixture of what we learned, all the the silly little expressions that come out of my mouth when I talk to patients are all stolen over the years from people's mm. conversations. Yeah, that I mean that mentorship. Um, and actually, I'm interested in what you said about. Did you call it? Is it believe? Believe, believe, B E L E V E. Yes, yeah. And so that, that's, that's an amazing. Lewisham. Yeah, it's an amazing organisation that's been set up by two fantastic women and a whole bunch of other amazing mentors now who, and so they run programmes for, for for girls from sort of about the, let's call it early, late, well, some, some girls probably about age nine into their sort of teenage years and beyond. So they may have um, skills, skills for girls in sort of to give them sort of confidence and some life skills. Um, and then they'll have mentoring skills for, for young women who are just starting out their careers who may want to mentor in that career area, or they may have also a kind of a side hustle that they want to go into a full-time hustle. And, um, and so having role models and people that you would meet up with 
normally face to face, but maybe like 90 minutes kind of once a month and you, you kind of form this relationship with your mentee and, and help them sort of guide them a bit. And sometimes the guidance is stuff that's, that we almost take for granted. It's almost like, how do you get yourself organized for learning and how do you um, step through doing things that make you feel uncomfortable? So you're stepping through and out of your comfort zone mm-hmm. and, uh, and people reassuring you that this is good to do. And, and traditionally, um, you know, it, 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 well, it's so true. And the, the recent events, you know, the last few days, what's been going on in Clapham and everything, just go to show that a lot of the time young girls need some role models need need somebody to say come on you know this isn't just a kind of accident that women appear you know in these strong positions they and these amazing companies uh it shouldn't be the exception it should be the rule you know so and there's not enough of that so i i think um i think the work that that's going on there is, is just amazing so I'm, I'm stepping into being a tiny tiny part of that yeah. um but yeah it's and it's lovely and it's uh it's nice it's local yeah yeah, yeah. Mm. I mean that sounds fantastic, um, mm. and 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 much needed, and you sound yes. very passionate about it. Well, it's relatively new to me, but the, the people who've been sort of most inspired, who 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 kind of they've I think been running it now since two thousand thirteen or fourteen, and I mixed in some business women's business circles and and got to know um, some of the founders, and uh, the stuff they do is absolutely brilliant, and it's like a really it's almost like a really polished program and uh, some of it is a little tiny bit paid so that people show up but most of the time it's all for free mm-hmm. and people yeah. commit to a certain amount of time and they show up to workshops and um you know and then think about like what they're going to pass on to people around them so you know if you've got if you're grounded and you're you're you know you've got now good income coming in you're not having to rely on external sources and you've got people who are effectively going to show you a you know some some really nice human being kind of behavior so respect building on respect you know that's going to flood down to your friends and family that's going to inspire people around you and i just love that kind of pull of the rope thing like come on we're all going to do this this is great um and i think you know it's it's so much better than than just sort of waiting until people at university age you know because you've lost so many people by them um and I, when i went to university most of the time i spent my time trying to like find people like me who weren't millionaires you know posh when I went to med school it's basically full of hundreds of posh people who drove around in Morgan cars (laughs) my friend Adrian and Sean Miller and I we we were like the poor people who were like scraping together the half onion to make something interesting to eat (laughs) I don't know what your uni experience was like but that was my uni experience (laughs) well um I'm trying to think so I as you know I've been to university quite a lot um (laughs) And um, so I was a mature student, I suppose, for the last three. Mm. The first one, I was 19 and, you know, wet behind the ears and and trained to be a nurse. So that was quite an eye opener going from boarding school, training to be a nurse and was the best education I could have had. And um, obviously something stuck because here I am still in healthcare. (laughs) Um, but, but yeah, no, I, I sort of funded myself. I think I borrowed a little bit of money off my grandparents. Um, not a huge amount just to sort of pay for accommodation. Actually, you know, I think that was later on. So no, when I started the nurse training, we got a bursary, which, you know, but I remember eating cup of soup, um, a lot with pasta. Oh yeah. That, that kind of kept you, you know, every day. Um, and you always found money to, to have a few drinks, of course. 
Oh yes, yeah, yeah. The uh, the Funny nutrition that. last. Yeah. But you would make um, your pint last a long time, wouldn't you? Yeah. Well, actually, we um, I don't know if this stuff still exists, but there was this awful pool bar stroke nightclub in town where it was I think five quid to get in and then ten p a pint. So basically six quid and you're okay. Did you ever go to Bart's? a lot then, though. Oh, yeah. But did, did you ever go to Bart's Bar, which was basically a total loss leader? So, so Bart's <laughs> Hospital had this, it still existed, I think, until very recently, this really dingy, seedy underground bar that was run by, by students um, behind the bar. And it was pretty much entirely funded out of the pockets of the consultants who just wanted to have somewhere seedy to hang out with students. <laughs> and uh, it made a total loss all of the time, but nobody minded. And uh, so, you know, people would kind of walk behind the bar and pour themselves a sneaky pint. And uh, it was an institution. Um, but, <laughs> yeah, very strange place. Um, but lots, lots of ridiculous memories of, of med school and kind of lots of lots of contrast between kind of haves and have nots. And um, and I remember I remember once we did this, as you all do, you go and do sort of community projects. And I remember in, in Tower Hamlets, climbing this big tower block, you know, that all the lift was broken to go and see it's a mother and her young son and uh, and uh, you would be paired with a sort of family and you would kind of get to know the family over the course of a term. And I remember the friend that I was doing it with, he was like, well, I, just, I don't understand, you know, why she can't go out to work. Where's the nanny? <laughs> so the most of the time I was, I was persuading John not to talk and I would, you know, <laughs> with the family. He's probably, a, he's probably an orthopedic surgeon, isn't he now? I don't know. <laughs> yeah that would yeah that would work wouldn't it that would work um who, who knows maybe ended up being a psychiatrist yeah good have done <laughs> we, we've all been there i was a shrink before i came a sports doctor so. <laughs> well, yeah so so you so you were at barts um yeah. but what did were there any other choices in the mix for career apart from medicine yes so before i became a doctor i was a sound engineer and then I, um, then I, I just didn't have the emotional maturity to cope with that kind of world. Let's say, <laughs> just the sound it that world. Yeah, the mu- the musician world. The you know, recording albums in in studios with with artists getting drunk and injecting heroin type world. <laughs> so, so, so you, and I was. So you chose medicine instead. <laughs> well, <laughs> just full of. Exactly. Just lack of music. That's that. That was the only thing that was missing. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that was lined up, and my parents said, "Well, yeah, you can go." And because I was on these precocious bits that did A levels a couple of years early, and uh, I went and did my little sound engineering. What was it? Brunel Polytechnic. It's ah. probably um, whatever it's called these days. And uh, and worked worked for, for a couple of years until I decided that, I, although I loved it, and there's still this musical bone in my body that's mm. you know, large and palpable. Um, it, I think it was the right choice. Although, you know, would I have become a medic? I don't know. If I'd, if I'd made, had a choice on a different day of the week, I would, I would toss the coin to decide between medicine and veterinary. Ah, yeah, of course. Yeah. 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 Were, you, were you not interested in ENT then? ENT. <laughs> but, be... but I didn't have any good role models. It's really interesting. So why did we choose to go into what we were doing? I don't know. It's, I, I had only about two, two good female role models in my entire medical career. Um, and, and anybody recently, mm, only peers that I'm meeting now, it's, it was pretty sad. I had, 
I love the uh, consultant in um, stroke medicine at Homerton Hospital. She's amazing. I think she's still she's still there, still alive. <laughs> she was great. She was feisty, um, and a, a surgical person who was slightly scary, but uh, persuaded me that maybe I should go and be a surgeon. Um, and uh, yeah, but other than that, it was just the usual archetypes of you know, unfortunately, arrogant men. What can I say? <laughs> maybe maybe it's changed. I hope it has. Yeah, I think that's that's important. We, we'll come back to that, but um, but I can't pass over the music bit because I'm not <laughs> sure we've had this discussion. And, and okay. I love, I'm I'm probably one of the greatest non musicians who loves music. I'm sure there's lots of us out there, but I I love music and yeah. I love stories of music. And and actually, if I'm going to read anything outside of something to do with what I do work wise, which is not really work, as you know, it's more. Um, it's about music. So at the moment I'm reading one of Dave Grohl's books and, and I love all the stories behind it. And, and I'm just fascinated by, by yeah. it really. Um, so, so sound engineering, are yes. you, behind, are you on the desk doing all the. You yes, know, the exactly. and jobs? Yeah. So in those days we had stripy tape. So it would be like 164 sort of rows mixing desk. And, uh, and you'd have literally big, big drums of tape. Um, that were, we say stripy because the way that they lay down the track was actually on a kind of diagonal. And, um, and so most of the times what you'd be doing is layering up sound. So you would record, I don't know, you would record a, a sort of, let's say you'd we'd probably put in some guitar riffs first of all, and then you might, you might actually re-record the exact same thing again, but to layer it up so it, it sounded more orchestral. Um, and this was just when MIDI click was just coming in. So now everything's obviously digital. But we had the difference between then and now is that was this cusp whereby sound was sort of kept time with MIDI. Um, and the, the, one of the roles that I had to play a lot of the time was to, um, because you're only in a studio for a certain amount of time, you've got to make sure that, that you don't miss out, um, you know, that this piece, we've, we've actually recorded all that we need for this track, yeah? Yeah. And some artists are great, they will come in, they're very disciplined, get straight down to work. Another time, <laughs> you would be like okay where's Dave <laughs> someone nudge him and uh you know get him awake and get him breathing um although and then you'd have other the other problem would be you'd have people who are who it, all studio time was considered to be playtime, and it's really expensive studio time mm. and so you'd have to say okay great that's a song for the future we're going to bring you back now to, <laughs> to finish this track <laughs> um there, there's a lot there of people living. management there then Oh yeah, and when you're when you're you know you you're barely out the womb, it's you just don't have the authority, especially when you're you're a five foot two girl. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So so sometimes you felt that they weren't listening to you. They had another agenda, or they were in another world, perhaps. I'd like to think they were in another world creatively, but there was probably more chemically. <laughs> yeah. 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 So so then was I mean was that. Um, dominated by males that that industry yes. at that time uh, emphatically so absolutely um with uh, with with some what's i say with some feminism that was brought to the table by some males uh who her, who would if you like who were just really flamboyant and amazingly creative but most of the time if you like i suppose you would think of a sound engineer as being a bit like a bit like a technical taxi driver, um, and so the the sort of hierarchy in the studio was there, there would be the producer and who would be um, 
sort of saying where he wanted to go in the car and you would drive him around effectively. Um, and then, there, but then there would be other times when you would, you would need to say, okay, we need to now, we're going to be changing. We're going to use this and we're going to, we've, we've got to tear down the desk a little bit now. And, and, and so you would give input a lot along the way. Um, so it's fun, but I think, and I always say, I, I feel a bit sad now that the, and, and I've, I've relearned sound engineering in the digital world. But I feel a bit sad. I feel a bit sad that the the organicness of it, the playing around, we people do still do use slippy slidey things in studios, but it was much more organic. And now it's like you can make anyone sound, anyone's voice sound perfect, or anyone's voice sound different. Whereas if you remember back in the eighties and nineties, you know how Banana Rama sounded. You know, they sounded like very sixth form school average. Yeah. Um, <laughs> whereas. Now everyone can sound really polished, but do they always sound like that in real life? Then, then that they necessarily do. Yeah, um, tricky when when they play live, and it's like, is this is, is this the same? <laughs> are these the same people? Um, yeah. You know, drugs or no drugs? Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. But, yeah. So so <laughs> at some point then along there, you you thought no 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 medicine. Yeah, it felt like that was the safety net, like that was the something that you did if you did, you know, three science A-levels and, and off you go. And I, as I said, I flipped a coin between, I, do I do a veterinary school choice or, or a med school choice? And I remember putting down different things on my upper form as it was back then and putting half veterinary, half medicine. And I remember my teacher saying, they're not going to take you very seriously <laughs> between the human and animal race. So flipped a coin, what can I say? <laughs> So, so I mean, you know, I know that you've well, you have to work in a, in a number of different fields, uh, you know, along along the way. Um, which are the ones that stand out for you? Um, I started out going to the states and and being a being a plastics and reconstructive surgeon. So I started out my life there, um, and then I ran away from America. Um, I literally abandoned my career because um, I just couldn't stand the ethics of it. So I remember one day we were going to basically what we did was you big cancer patients with big big holes in them we would go and fill the holes in with body parts essence and uh and there was lots of conversations around or not having conversations around palliative care it's more like we're going to do the surgery regardless i remember literally one night packing my bag and getting on a plane and i ran away to my grandparents house because they would be the only people who wouldn't tell me off <laughs> where, where were and they was, they were in snowdonia <laughs> and, uh, so you went from america to snowdonia yeah Minnesota to Snowdonia. Um, both are still looking for you. Do they know that they realize that you've got? <laughs> so I arrive at the doorstep and then my grandmother says, well, yeah, you can sort of stay here. And I'd abandoned Bob, my boyfriend over there as well, I should say, um, uh, who refused to come home with me. Um, and I remember my grandma saying, well, that's great. Yeah, you can come and stay for a bit. Um, but you need a job, of course. <laughs> So they, she said, there's a hospital up the road. So I remember going walking on Snowden for the day and then walking into the hospital and saying, do you have an HR department? And then they said, what's that? <laughs> and they said, um, <laughs> and they pointed me to this office and I kind of knocked on the door. I remember I was wearing my climbing boots at the time. I'd just come down off, you know, the Ogwin, somewhere up in the Ogwin. And uh, they, uh, they said, um, yeah, actually we do have a job. Um, somebody was supposed to start an SHO post in psychiatry. And uh, and they, they didn't turn up and they said they're not coming and we need someone to fill the job. And so then I went into psychiatry. <laughs> so it's basically it's yours. <laughs> it was literally like that. You know, the odd reference from somebody in the past. And, and I started well the next day. Um, 
and then I love psychiatry it was great thankfully it was before before the big big problems that have arisen out of different kinds of drugs hitting the mental world um but it was fascinating it was um and it's really helped me to understand people a lot better and understand my own feelings as a human being and uh and also it teaches you to to work with people in a way that so you'd have conversations in the middle of the night you know repeatedly two or three times in the middle of the night and you'd have to sort of be calm and just listen and absorb and just you know sometimes you'd sit in silence for an hour and not say anything whilst you were waiting for the person to say something first of all which it's surprising for people to hear, hear me say that because I'm so verbose a lot of the time but um and we'd have to do an awful lot of talking people down off bridges as well because it was the Menai Straits and there's two two tall bridges there and people would regularly get on the bridge and then we'd go up in the van and <laughs> persuade them to not go off the bridge and um so I loved I did love psychiatry and then eventually eventually after doing all my psych exams I decided that and I was really getting into running at that point because uh, I was very unfit when I left America and I was starting to pick up injuries because I was doing a lot of marathons and stuff. And, and I decided that I missed the body as well as the mind. Mm. And, uh, and that's how that went. And Bangor's got a huge sort of sports science background. And it kind of just grew from there. And, and then I eventually came to London and, and here we are. And so what do you call yourself now? I am a fish, my official boring title is a consultant in sport and exercise medicine. Um, so like a sports medicine doctor is what I'd call myself. Because yeah. most people don't know what that means otherwise. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's true. Do, do you think that people, you know, the general public now have an idea about what a sports doctor does, what sports medicine is about? They still think it's that you work for a football team a lot of the time or that you're a physio or that you um, or that you are like an orthopedic surgeon. So I, so I said to people, I'm not a physio. I'm not a rheumatologist. You don't work for football teams and I'm not a surgeon. But if you're somebody who's, Who's a, who's a runner who's got some persistent problems that's stopping you from being active and uh, and we're more than just achy painy people we're also kind of sort of whole body stuff so for example I see a lot of people who who train really really hard and they run into these sort of hormonal situations whereby they've disoverloaded their system and they've become you know overtrained or they might have red relative energy deficiency syndrome so mm. um like what are people actually doing to look after their bodies as they're training hard um and we're very, we're very sort of focused on like all of you moving well together rather than a surgeon might just stare at the knee, miss the fact that actually your ankle doesn't move very well or the fact that you only get two hours sleep a night or yeah. <laughs> you know, all that important stuff. Um, so we help people to be active and, and that spreads. It's not just us runners and triathletes. It's also extends into the spheres of sort of the cancer world. So I've done a lot of work with, for example, the leaders in oncology care, help, helping people to be active through their cancer treatment and beyond um, because of all the huge advantages that brings them. Whereas in the past, doctors have basically told people to lie on their bed and like, don't do anything when you're going through cancer treatment, which is just daft. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's been a big change. I, I had um, a conversation with um, Hannah Leach, who's a physio who specializes in cancer care. We, we did a pod a few weeks back. And great to hear about, you know, her, her work there. And, um, and that's it, isn't it? Because, you know, our, our concepts, our thinking around cancer has changed and is, you know, always changing. Um, and there's so much you can do. Yes. Yourself and, and hence feel 
more of a sense of control. Perhaps that's very important. It's so true. And, and that's the one thing that, that people still, bizarrely, still defer those thoughts and decisions to doctors. And most doctors are terrible at talking to people about, about being active in, 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 in whilst they're um, going through treatment. And as you know, like, you know, if you're, if you're on chemotherapy, which sort of deconditions your muscles a little bit for want of a better description, and then if you, you might never have had any joint pains before, but then, you know, if your muscles are a little bit weaker, then, and some of these cancer treatments can give us achy joints and suddenly all this suddenly you find yourself you know it's difficult to go, go up and down stairs and you've never had that problem before and all that all that important stuff about why we actually exercise we don't really exercise because it's good for us I don't really believe that that's the case I'd like to think that that was the case but most <laughs> of the time it's because it makes us feel good hey yeah. yeah so we go for a run we you know this better than anybody Richmond but you know you blow off steam from your head you come back a nice person and I remember when I met, met my husband here, Jules, uh, if I was, if I'd done too much work in a day and been grumpy, he would just pass me my trainers <laughs> and then I'd come back a different person. <laughs> well, that's brilliant, isn't it? And actually, you know, that I was chatting to someone earlier about, um, you know, moments when we realise that we feel something because, you know, it's quite easy to, for example, to, to, think about pain and, and to sort of get a sense, oh, I've had pain all, all day and not really notice when you feel better. And, and a lot of the important stuff in life, we don't, we don't notice that moment. And, and I always remember one of Simon Sinek's things in one of his interviews where he says, tell me the exact moment where you fell in love with your wife or partner. And, um, and you can't, you can't. When was that moment you felt better? I don't know I just now I feel better so yeah. I, you know there's we're not aware of that absolute moment um yeah. it's it's about the accumulation of things that we do yeah. uh, the little things we do for that other person or or the little things we do for ourselves each day that self-caring so a little bit of exercise each day you know in your own way if you have cancer or and being treated and, and such like your other half giving you your shoes and saying, go on, go for a run. Yeah. That's a powerful message. Yes. Most get, out, people get out. Go on, go. <laughs> That's what you're missing. Yeah. Um, and, and it's very true. And yes, we're probably better at organizing our days now and taking care of this, but even like even lockdown, things have changed. You know, I, I do feel sorry for people who, who, who's only releases to go to the gym. How, that must be dreadful for them. And, and I think I worry that um, that we've, if you like, sort of forgotten the spirituality of exercise. And I'm not a woo person at all, but there is something amazing about flow. And I'm very interested in flow and how we achieve flow and, um, you know, how those sort of physical states and mental states come about. And, you know, you can't, I don't believe you can, you can be somebody who, who is somebody who excels in life generally and you can't achieve flow unless you are somebody who is, is physically active. I really believe that. And um, it's interesting that we've, we've sort of made this disconnect between our bodies and our minds when we're exercising, like this is just for my body. Yeah. <laughs> and yet only now we're realizing actually it's really for my mind. <laughs> yeah. So you see a problem with, with this, well, Cartesian Jew. I mean, this is like 400 years old now, isn't it? At least yeah. this idea <laughs> And our healthcare system still works like that, and we're conditioned to think that way. And the mess, you know, mental health says that the mind is is somehow separate from the body. Yeah. But 
but how can i mean fortunately we've got embodied cognition we've got inactivism we've got a lot of other stuff now that's that helps us to to bring it together for people and say no look you know if you're if you're running um the way that you the way that you think will emerge from how your body is and actually the way that you run shapes your perception of the world that you see and feel anyway so it all comes together yeah yeah and it's so important it's only when we lose it um what's taken away from us that we that we realize it's important and i just wish just wish generally through our, our lives in the educational process and i was just thinking about this recently about still reading the snaps around girls who give up sport when they get to be teenagers and I was thinking back you know I pretty much gave up sport um between the ages of you know I went and played hockey in school but I didn't didn't pursue it after school because we had such a lot of homework and mm. and yet I was super active as a child and then I only really went back to being active when I was hugely overweight as an adult and came back from America wheezing my way around a mountain thinking this is ridiculous I need to take care of myself how have I got to 13 stone you know living in America <laughs> yeah. so, it, kind of, it kind of crept up on you then oh yeah so you know it's like I went to med school when I started at med school I think I weighed about seven and a half stone and then I went when I came back from America I weighed 13 stone you do the math yeah and uh yeah I know but it was the norm there you know and in Minnesota, yeah. it's so cold, you don't go outside. <laughs> yeah. But it shows that, you know, the, the context you're in, the environment, the culture, and, and how that then shapes your, your decision-making. I mean, look, there's good evidence around, um, you know, Indian cultures in America, aren't there? That Them on being exposed to American diet and, and what, yeah. what happens yeah. as a consequence of that. Yeah. But, but coming sort of close to home, it's interesting you mentioned the... Uh, the girls giving up sport I mean I would imagine that there's a number of boys as well but girls seems to be a particular issue based on a whole range of, of reasons around perhaps self-image the way that they're treated at school things that happen uh, how teachers talk to talk to them whether you're any good and if and the judgment that comes with that in that environment um, there's a number of factors there, and funny enough, um, an old an old um, friend of mine has recently co-founded something called We Are Girls in Sport, and it's and it's based on all of this. And they recently yes. ran a really good series of workshops on on that, and um, and their work is is all about encouraging sport, but sport in its widest sense, so being active, whatever that might, yeah, whatever yeah. that might be. Um, and, and it doesn't have to be sort of competitive competitive when you watch girls playing with boys and like especially with football and like you know I wasn't allowed to play football because I'm a thousand years old but now you know since then thankfully the law was changed and girls are allowed to play football at school yeah um, but then when you get when they get to the teenage years and the boys say oh you know you're a little bit pants you know give me the ball back sort of thing um no wonder people get discouraged and it's and it's just movement for movement's sake is is worth everything and I just wish it was given as important important kind of um prowess in schools as it is um the, you know the learning because you can do the learning you can learn you can go away to learn the facts at any stage in life but keep learning learning a, a mindset of keeping active is so important and gosh you're setting yourself up for for so much bad stuff early on aren't you so let's imagine you went through your teenage years and you gained a lot of weight and then you became a mum and then you may have even less reason in your mind to say oh, i haven't got any time and so you've spent a lifetime of inactivity yeah. and then you pass it on to your children and 
Yeah, that's the thing. It's the legacy, isn't it? It's it's how you're shaping your future as an individual by becoming less active. And let's face it, you know, I, I, you know, none, neither of us are pointing the finger and blaming because people, in a sense, you know, they're not choosing the situations that they're in. They're not ch- even choosing the way that they think about it. We haven't chosen the minds that we have. It's conditioning, 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 and pressure, resulting in in these things happening, and then shaping that future health. And how their life is, um, but also just missing out on on so much, you know, from obviously all the benefits we've just been talking about them, but also working with people in teamwork, connections, the social aspect of being in a yeah. sports club or whatever it might be. Absolutely, absolutely, and just even the, you know, so like now, you know, if you were part of a running club or something, you could show up, and you probably could still go and run with your mates outside. You could probably be still get away with that, but. I think some of the best conversations you also have with people are either during the event or after the event. And, um, and, and sports are great. It's just when you love doing an activity, it's a, it's a really nice way of meeting with other people, uh, especially in a non-awkward way, because you're showing up for that activity. So if you, so when I first moved to London um, and before I met my husband um, and I, and I, uh, I've done a lot of running away in my life. So I ran away from Snowdonia also to London. <laughs> And um, um, well, I made I made a pact with myself that I wasn't I wasn't allowed to finish the day without saying hello to somebody and asking them their name by seven p.m. So in other words, I had to have struck up a conversation with somebody well enough. Mm. And the quickest way to do that was to join in with activities. Um, so it might be that you went for you know a walking tour of London, or you you, you know you joined a triathlon club or whatever. Um, and and you don't feel foolish then. There's so much properness about making connections. In, in, especially in the UK it's ridiculous so if you're in London and you say hello to somebody they, they instantly assume we're going to stab or rob them <laughs> yeah. um, which is such a shame <laughs> whereas um, whereas when you turn up to a run club they'd be like oh hi you know hi I'm Debbie you know I run at this pace and you know have you done a marathon before and, yeah. and all that great stuff and you can just show up and, and instantly have a have a nice conversation with human beings who, who would use, I think runners are quite nice people on the whole because we just I, I don't know what it is about running in particular, but as long as you, as long, that, you as long as you don't go in the top group where they're all competing, <laughs> I'd never be that fast. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's, it is. It's a great connector, um, and especially with learning skills you can learn from sport early in your life about team and teamship and all that stuff transfers into your adult life, into your business life, into your you know career life. Um, which is why so many sports people become career coaches, let's face it. <laughs> yeah, it's funny how we sort of, you know, drift that that way. Yeah. Um, you know, we we want to help people. You do it via doctoring. I did it via nursing and physio. And then, you know, you've then found yourself coaching from a business perspective. I found myself self coaching from a pain perspective. Yeah, there's something that that's in you that you suddenly realise that's sort of what you were doing anyway, yeah, and then you yeah. somehow formalise it a little, a little bit. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and then that becomes the way that you're you're helping people by by connecting with them in a particular way. Yeah, yeah, and I think I think you we never grow out of that really wanting to what's the, what's the, what's the next thing we can sort of help somebody with I love it when somebody comes and asks me like I love I love being a connector especially and I think that's something that 
the older we get, the, the, the privilege we have of more and more connections is to be able to help people by just actually connecting people up with other people. Yeah. And I wish people shared their connections a bit more and weren't so tight, tidy with it, you know? This is my, this is my yeah. collective yeah yeah that's an interesting point um because people have been like and then it once you get into a kind of a group of connected people then they connect and then you connect and then it, it starts to to build and i like you i've had that that experience um and suddenly out of the blue on a wednesday afternoon at four o'clock you just get ping and an email comes up from someone you know saying just like to introduce you to so and so think you may have something in common have a chat and you're like oh and how much energy does that give you it's so great isn't it it's so great and it's so nice when you suddenly think when somebody said asks you do you know anybody in this area you might be able to sort of give me a bit of guidance and I go I do and I know they're going to like giving you that little bit of guidance as well so I I love that marrying people up especially when I meet great therapists and physios and osteos and people like yourself I just love so you need to just uh, ping up some random email to something. You need to go and speak to Richmond. You need to go and speak to this person and yeah. learn how to do it properly. But yeah, yeah and then because because you know when when I if someone asks me, oh, I need a consultant for this or anything for that, then quite often I'll, I'll you know you'll be the person I'll come to and say, oh, do you know? And you say, oh yeah, go and see that person or, or that person. You know, I know that you've got a, you've built up a network of you know, trustworthy people who, who, who do a great job. Um, and that's, and that's what you need. Yeah. Um, so it's, yeah. it's fantastic to, to be able to, to work. Yeah. It's, and, and it's so for free. It's great. <laughs> yeah. And, and equally, you know, the energy from, from doing that, from, from, you know, connecting people up and then you see them have their, con or they start having their conversation. And you go, oh, great. That's, uh, yeah. That's what it's all about. Um, but um, why why did you sort of on on connections, more bodily ones, you know, the, the hip sort of connects the lower limb to the body. So what, <laughs> why why are you so interested? Why are you so interested in the in the hip and the groin? I think I think it's something that's uh, so. I don't believe in people as individual body parts. I should say that, but we have yeah. to. I have to sort of describe it. So. But if you come to see me, I'll be asking you as much about your elbows, about your hip. But it's, I think, I think there is there is a lot of mystique and a lot of weird stuff that goes on around people who believe nonsense from the past. So, for example, probably the, one of the biggest load of nonsense is this concept of you should go and have an operation, you know, for a Gilmore's groin. Okay, so there's this idea that we have these sort of weaknesses in our abdominal wall, and and that means pain, and therefore the surgeon's got to go and darn it up now. Yes, occasionally body parts can protrude through holes in, in, in our anatomy. And there are times when people do need some hernia surgery. But that's a great example of something that's a myth that's still propagating. Every day I still have to dispel some of these myths like, well, you know, actually maybe something sometimes is a bit structural, but it's also as much to do with how people are moving. So, but it's gotten overcomplicated. And again, it comes back to this idea that people hold these secrets. Like I'm not going to tell anybody really how it's done. <laughs> Whereas I'm just desperate to like try and share as much knowledge as possible. Like, you know, you can examine people here and maybe help them by steering them in these directions. If you let go of those myths, forget everything you learned in medical yeah. school. <laughs> speaking. Yeah. And don't just stand at the end of a table and twist the limb around, you know, actually get a human being to do some movement. So one of my big passions is about trying to re-educate people and just in the process of examining 
And it's not just about like, how does the limb move? It's like how the person is behaving as you're moving the limb on, mm. you know, where are they holding back or where are they guarding and, and all that stuff. And that just gets forgotten. You see a crowd of medical students around the round of foot. It's fascinating. Nobody's looking at the face. They're all just <laughs> looking at the toe. <laughs> I really want to change oh. the world of orthopedic examination so much. I just throw out a lot of these diagnostic tests that are nonsense. Yeah. So, yeah. So, okay. So, so the, that, that area of the body, and I know, I know you completely work whole person. So that was probably an unfair way of phrasing the question. Um, but, um, but yeah, that, you know, that, that area um, does seem to hold many mysteries. It's very complex. There's, there's lots of, you know, natural spaces where important blood vessels and nerves and things run, run through. But as you said, you know, we're always, we're always a person and and it's the person's individual experience that you're you're working with where where do you think you learned that from because let's face it we're all trained not to think that way yeah. really good point gosh i had i had a lovely influence from an australian um also like new zealand sorry New Zealand um, consultant who is a rheumatology. He was one of my mentors when I was in North Wales, and and he he came from. So in New Zealand, they have the um, a sort of scheme, a workers' compensation scheme. So if you're injured farming or logging or mining or whatever it is you do in New Zealand, then they would bring people to sort of be be rehabilitated. And a lot of that was actually much more about um, kind of movement and the person. And they'd get people to do the same things each day. You know, you get up, you get your washed, you get your clothes on, you pack your lunch and you you come to rehab school. You don't just lie in a bed with your back pain. Mm. Um, and so Jeremy Jones really sort of taught me around kind of movement and, and touch. And then I basically spent a lot of my career hanging hanging around with people who do a lot of moving. So it might be that you'd be in a circus performance type thing, doing weird things upside down and, and how do bodies move that way. And um, and I think I think it's as much about understanding what kind of good movement is and healthy movement as opposed to just what's wrong <laughs> yeah yeah um and we've lost touch with all that so if you saw me examine somebody you'd, you'd say well there's none of that in the textbook you know there might be one thing i do that you would see in the textbook yeah. the rest of the time it's just my melange of how i've i've worked with a lot of the time wacky wacky physios and osteos who are very interested in unusual movement patterns and so yeah, I'm not very conventional, and I use weird terms like you know the hip feels sticky, and you know. So if you get a letter from me, there'll be a lot of weird words in it. Um, but you can you can sort of feel your way around movement, and you can feel restrictions in people, and um, and a lot of the time this is still still there's still disconnect. And I really want to get you know spine people to understand that that's joined up with a body part, and I also want. <laughs> people just stop, stop focusing on the net result, which is the sore joint, because there's stuff around it that probably created that. Yeah. You, you say that's weird terminology though, but I would say that, that actually that's language that the person will relate to better than, ooh, you've got a bit of a hard end feel there. <laughs> What's that? Or, or something else. Or your joint is incongruent, yes. Yeah, yeah. There's all these words that are commonly used and they're, they're clunky and they're completely meaningless to the normal person. Yeah. We're all normal as much as we're all not normal. You know, we're either all normal or we're all not normal. I've, you know, we're all in the same <laughs> boat with our you know, nuances and all the rest of it. Yes, yeah. And I do see some patients who, who, who are obviously sort of highly intellectual who then try and 
involve the medical language as part of the language they'll come in and they'll use phrases like i feel my glomerulus isn't working properly and i just want to stick my head in a bucket and think i have to a lot of the time just say stop just tell me what you're experiencing just you know you can point you can move you can show me it doesn't like it if i do this but stop trying to sort of kind of do the worst version of your that you could possibly use yourself which is trying to use dreadful doctor language i just I want them to disengage from that. And I think it's because they feel they're not going to be taken seriously enough yeah. or that they're worried that they're not going to be heard. Or so they come in with their kind of list of words. And, and, and most of the time I say to them that I'm just going to say, we're just going to talk about shapes and movement. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. And if you, if, you talk, if you saw me talking through someone with an MRI scan, you know, I'd say that most of the time this stuff is, a lot of this stuff is complete nonsense. These are all normal findings, but this bit here might matter a bit. And we're just going to talk about some shapes. Mm. at the end of the day it's just the scan it's not you and we're going to treat you not the scan (laughs) yeah yeah i mean that's it's such a simple but important message and you know and and all the things you say as you know you know we work in similar ways and have similar ideas around that and changing the language so it's it's completely non-threatening but but what happens when someone doesn't really respond to to that how do you how do you shift things if someone kind of goes no 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 we sort of need to talk more scientifically here or or that sounds a bit waffly or how how do you deal with that so there are some people that want to to sort of play up to that game and usually what i'll do is i'll just ask them (laughs) i say like why do we want to use some labels here when we can just talk about some concepts let's talk about some concepts around movement or you might have somebody that wants to, was really, really keen to have a label um, for the best reason. So they feel like they're understanding themselves and they're understanding their situation. So a lot of the time I have to prize things off a label. They say, well, what is my diagnosis? And I'll go, well, you're experiencing some pain. And uh, these may be contributing factors, but, you know, pain is a whole body experience. It's like an emotional experience. It's like life experience. It's not just there's a lesion in your hip. And they really want me to say, and I say, I can write in a letter that, you know, you have some anterior superior label tearing and you've got a pincer-shaped deformity and la, 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 la. But at the end of the day, <laughs> this is you and your experience rather than this collection of rhubarb words, you know. Um, and I say, we, we'll, we'll put the technical words in there so that people realise that, you know, we're, we're sort of, this is there for the medical community. But I'd much rather, actually, we could just talk about you know, the fact that you're experiencing pain and, and what we can do to sort of influence that and help you to get more bro- robust. And occasionally some people, yes, they might need an operation or a new hip or whatever. But even then, even then, I I still want to bring people back to the sense of sense of self and the control as opposed to the, what's the medical community slapping on me now? <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm a person yeah. with this thing. Yeah, I'm a hip patient. Yeah. You know? Someone said that to me today and I said, that's interesting. I thought you were Mary. <laughs> <laughs> but that, that way, you're, yeah, you are. You're, you're meeting their need for the, it's almost like, you know, they go running it. Well, no, maybe not running, but they go out of the clinic clutching the, the diagnosis on a bit of paper. I've won. This is the golden ticket. My Willy Wonka golden ticket. And I great. See. And oh, now what? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Ah, so where do I take it? Because if I take it there, they say this. If I take it there, they say that. Oh, right. Now I'm re- now I've got a problem. Now I've got a problem. Now I've got a label. Now I've got a problem. Yeah. And and I understand the dissatisfaction, especially when people come to see me. They've probably seen 
a minimum of four other people by the time they come to see me. So they've seen their doctor, they've seen a physio and osteo, they've probably seen a surgeon, and then they, they say, go and see Kat. And so I understand that. And they also want you to, to play off, you know, like what, how does your opinion compare with other people's opinions? And I go, well, that's something that maybe didn't work for you there. Um, maybe we can try this. And that's great that someone said that because we now that that hasn't worked for you. So let's maybe come over here. Mm. Um, but it's interesting. So, so it's rare these days that I see somebody who's just fallen off a bike outside the building. Yeah. <laughs> and they'll so come more of a lingering layers. kind of, you know, chronic persistent, just not really getting better. Yeah. The last chance loon hip person is someone who said to me the other day, which I thought was really sad, but interesting. Yeah. So, so really then you don't need a, you don't need a door in your clinic. You need those kind of swing door yeah. thing where you walk into That's a saloon, where it's more of a saloon style. Yeah, with um, a step. I can see myself yeah. in, and cowboy, in my cowboy boots on the, on the desk. <laughs> a spittoon. <laughs> well, we sort of laugh, but, but actually you know, breaking the mold in that way. I mean, you're, you're doing that for all the right reasons anyway. I mean, I, I'm not sure what, oh, well, of course, at the moment you're having to wear scrubs, but, yeah. but um, you know, maybe, maybe the outfit could, could, maybe there's some thought there that needed on what, yes. with knockdown finishes, what, what will you dress up as? I'm going to just come in my blingiest, blingiest self. <laughs> so I might wear a frock with chandelier earrings is what yeah. I might do. Um, but if you saw me most of the time, you'd realise that I wear a lot of very loud shirts with kind of ridiculous floral patterns on in a sort of slight disdain for the medical community's traditional kind of, you know, sombre, sombre city wear. So yeah. a lot of the time I wear some mad clothes and I will, I'm so looking forward to going back to that. Although the only thing I will say about scrubs is that, um, it, you know, it does lessen your dry cleaning bill. <laughs> yeah, this is true. And, yeah. and you don't have to worry about you know what am i going to wear which which yeah which outfit today yeah. so pluses and minuses pluses and minuses so, yeah. Oh. yeah so that's great listen well, i could talk to you um for days um but um but but i but i won't i won't we'll we'll have to do a another another episode because you've always got so many <laughs> great stories and things to to tell um so look, there's there's two sort of hats. Um, if if people want to find you um, for your two different hats, where where should they go? Uh, if they if they take me seriously enough to want to, to find out what I can do as a clinician, then they can come to sport.london.co.uk. And and if they're a clinician or a therapist or a doctor or anybody who wants to get involved in kind of shaping their practice into something that's it's, that's great for them and helps patients, then privatepracticeninja.co.uk I'm there as well fantastic and, and you're on social media aren't you yes so I love to hang out on LinkedIn and uh, a bit of Instagram and uh, I do love a good vlog a good vlog and and so where where can people see your vlogs uh on YouTube and and, and they're all over our website as well right okay great so it's easy to to access your your stuff which which yeah. people definitely should on on both fronts um <laughs> because it's it's excellent so listen that's that's been great thanks so much for making Thank time it's been great fun <laughs> and um yeah and i'm 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 sure that um we should have a, a part do duh that was my <laughs> french been out of practice a part two with um, my <laughs> yes Yes, absolutely. With uh, with some sort of dressing up, and we'll we'll make it into a, a vlog. But maybe it's maybe a 
I have to be a short one for that. But um, anyway, yeah, maybe a bit of video footage. <laughs> and and the dogs, we'll have to see the dogs. Oh as yeah, well. oh absolutely, they're part of the team. <laughs> Fantastic. Thanks so much. See you soon. Thank Take you, care. Richard. Bye. Bye.